Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, even with all the chaos at Queen's Park these days, leaders gathered to pay tribute to a former legislative member, Bill Davis. What has Doug Ford learned from his predecessor? And Cubia set the stage a province-wide walkout this Friday, despite the government ban response. How are local school boards handling the proposed walkout? And Michael Kempka, the Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, will also join the show to discuss the latest from the Emergency Act Inquiry. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to take you back to begin the program today to a, a quieter, more tranquil time, a more reflective time, I guess. And it wasn't that many days ago at Queen's Park uh, when uh, one of the great politicians, not just in Ontario, but in Canada's history, uh, was honored. Steve Pakin t- talks about it and uh, in his blog today on TVO.org. Uh, it's called uh, What Doug Ford Learned from Bill Davis. And Steve joins us on the program uh, to talk about that. Amid all the the craziness that's going on, it's uh, kind of interesting, Steve, that just a few days ago you were there and uh, everybody was getting along, everybody was hand clapped, you know, just the, there was a different vibe, a different attitude. And I have probably had a lot to do with the person they were honoring. No question about that. Uh, it is always unusual when there's this little oasis of civility, uh, which kind of takes everybody away from the usual business of Queen's Park. But it did happen. I was there. I saw it. So I know it happened. And it was, as you put it, one of those rare moments where everybody started singing out of the same hymn book uh, because um, the person they were honoring was worth it. And they all feel pretty much the same way about him. Uh, what I love about what you do a lot, of, well, you show every night, but I mean, you're offering some insights. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people in the province, Steve, didn't know that this is actually a tradition at Queen's Park about honoring uh, people who had served and who have uh, passed on. No, that's quite true. Um, The way it usually works is that after a member of the legislature has died, uh, the Legislative Assembly is in touch with their family, and they try to agree on a date whereby some members of the family and friends can come to Queen's Park and hear the MPPs at the end of the day pay tribute to the former member of the legislature. And, uh, you know, I've I've seen numerous occasions where this happens over the years, and you know, coming back to first principles, it's one of those rare moments when everybody gets up and says something nice about a former colleague. Uh, I, I suspect some of your listeners might be thinking, well, wait a sec, Bill Davis died 14 months ago, so w- why are they only doing this now? And, of course, you know, the answer is a bunch of things. Number one, COVID. Uh, number mm-hmm. two, trying to get the family, enough family members to be available to come to Queen's Park. Mr. Davis's wife was there. She's 89 years old. It is difficult for her to get to Queen's Park. Um, uh, but she did get there, uh, along with four of the five Davis kids, along with some of the grandchildren, along with, if you can imagine this, the, Bill, do you remember who the principal secretary for Bill Davis was back in the early 1980s in his last government? Um, I'll give you, I think he's still uh, in politics, isn't he? Oh, he's very much still in politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his name is John Tory. He's the mayor of Toronto, and Monday night, he had a, uh, you know, for, for him, a terrific landslide victory uh, to stay on for a third term as mayor. And then Tuesday afternoon, uh, he was just like everybody else up in the gallery at Queen's Park, along with Hugh Siegel, who's a former senator and another friend of Mr. Davis's from back in the day, and Sally Barnes. These are names that may not mean anything to anybody under the age of 50, but once upon a time, these three people helped Mr. Davis run Ontario, Inc. And they were all there because it was important for them to be there to hear the tributes uh, to the longest-living Ontario Premier ever. He lived to be 92 years old, dying last August, this is two Augusts ago, and having left really an unrivaled record of any Premier of our lifetime. 
I, I know it can be difficult, uh, and you've talked about this in a number of the books you've written, uh, to compare one era to another because it's it's apples to oranges an awful lot of the time. But what made the Davis era so unique here in the province of Ontario? As you say, it's almost, as you look back on this, it's like Camelot. Indeed, and it's funny. Um, that was exactly the expression that was used. I remember I got a little place on Manitoulin Island, and as it turned out, my next-door neighbor on Manitoulin Island was a guy who was the former head of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And I think Mike Harris was the premier at the time that we found ourselves together on the beach that same day. And, uh, you know, I, he didn't realize I had a place there. I didn't realize he had a place there. We got to talking, and we started talking about uh, what teachers were, were dealing with during the Harris years. And that was the comment he used. His name was Rod Albert, and he said, little did I know that when I was carrying picket signs to blast Bill Davis that I'd look back at those days as if they were Camelot. But here's the reality. The reality is uh, Bill Davis was not a hard-bitten ideological character. Uh, For those people who don't remember him, he was premier from 1971 to 1985, which is the second longest-serving term uh, of any premier in Ontario history. Only Oliver Mowat's 24 years are longer. Mr. Davis had almost 14. And and one of the reasons that he was so good at what he did was that he won a majority in 71, then he won a minority government in 75, another minority government in 77, before reclaiming the majority in 1981. And there were six years in the middle there where he had to navigate his way through a minority parliament. Now, you can't be a hard-bitten, ideological, my-way-or-the-highway, scorched-earth kind of premier and get anything done in a minority parliament under those circumstances. And Mr. Davis's ability to be collegial, his ability to understand that everybody got elected to come to Queen's Park to improve the province. Some people see it one way, some people see it another way, but everybody's intentions are good. He understood that. He knew how to compromise. He wasn't out to take no prisoners. And as a result, I did a book on Bill Davis about five years ago and and Mm -hmm. got so many wonderful stories from opponents, right? He was a conservative. I got so many uh, stories from liberals and from new Democrats talking about what a great premier he was because he did allow everybody to participate. And and as a result, uh, we had a lot more social cohesion back in those days and things. I don't think these are my rose-colored glasses looking back all these years later. Things were better. So I'll leave it at that. Well, and liberals were liberals and conservatives were conservatives. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, people have to understand, yeah, there was still partisan politics there. But you've also written about how uh, Bill Davis and, and, well, then liberal leader Bob Nixon uh, would clash constantly in the legislature. But there was a, a mutual respect between the two of them. And you don't see that often these days anyway. Uh, if you think about the front bench back then, and we're going back to the middle 1970s right now. So it's a long time ago. It's almost 50 years ago. You've got Bill Davis as the premier leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. you got Robert Nixon, who was the leader of the Liberals. Uh, his father was premier. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Nixon was sort of a legendary figure in much of rural Ontario and certainly in Liberal Party circles. And you had Stephen Lewis, a future United Nations ambassador, as the leader of the Ontario New Democrats at the time. I mean, that's a pretty solid front bench, Bill. I don't know that we've had three leaders of three parties at the same time that were as good as those three. And, and yes... Mr. Davis had the ability, when he needed to move to the right, remember the Liberals were a more right-wing party back then, if he needed Mm -hmm. to move a little to the right to get support to put something through, he could find common cause with Bob Nixon. If he needed to move to the left a little bit to get something through, like rent review, which came in in 1975, that's his doing. If you're a tenant in Ontario today, you can thank Bill Davis for rent review and rent controls, because he brought it in, and the program today is pretty much, I mean, with a few tinkerings here and there, but it's pretty much the same thing from 1975, 
And Stephen Lewis helped him get that in. So, you know, tack left, tack right, get support where you need it, and ultimately, at the end of the day, move the province forward. Well, and as you mentioned in the piece uh, on the TVO.org webpage, uh, you look at some of the Davis accomplishments, and, and you'd have to look at that and say, this is a conservative. I mean, he, he initiated the conservation authorities here in this province, by the way, who some would suggest are under attack these days. Uh, and as a matter of fact, when uh, when the McGinney government introduced the Greenbelt legislation uh, and that committee, uh, they tapped a former Bill Davis cabinet minister, Dr. Bob Elgie, to run that for a number of years. And he did an incredible job. So it, well, it, th- there were party right. lines then, but there was a much different attitude, it, 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 especially among those p- people. It wasn't there, there was no strident, OK, I'm right wing. I'm not going to look at anything. The environment. Uh, this guy got it. Well, in fact, it was the Davis government that created the first ministry of the environment in the province of yep. Ontario. And and I, whenever I called Mr. Davis a conservative, if we'd be chatting and I'd say, well, you know, you as a conservative and he'd interrupt me all the time. He'd always say, I'm not a conservative. I'm a progressive conservative. And the adjective for him was as important as the noun. Again, allowing him to tack back and forth, depending on whose support he needed. And it was, you know, the, the, <laughs> You wouldn't expect this, but Bill Davis's government brought in French in the court system in Ontario, where numbers were warranted. You could have a trial in French. That was a civil right that you enjoyed because the Davis government brought that in. It was his attorney general, Roy McMurtry, who brought that in. And, you know, you could go on. The Niagara Escarpment Commission, you know, which was a, a, an institution designed to protect our internationally recognized beautiful biosphere, the Niagara Escarpment, uh, to make sure that it was, uh, you know, to, that we could keep that part of our province pristine, pure. Uh, very much like the green belt uh, of the McGinty years, you know. Let's not have uh, too much development in that area uh, so that the province can continue to protect these crown jewels. He just sort of got it, you know. I mean, the first thing he did, one of the first things he did uh, was uh, he canceled the Spadina Expressway. I don't know how mm-hmm. many people here remember that he got sworn in in March of 1971, and in June of 71, he got up in the legislature to give a speech in which he said, Mr. Speaker, if we're trying to design, you know, cities for cars, the Spadina Expressway is a great place to start. But if we want to design cities for people, it is a great place to stop. And the reason when you drive down Allen Road in northwest Toronto nowadays, the reason it stops at Eglinton and doesn't cut through Forest Hill and doesn't cut through the annex and go right down to the waterfront, the reason it doesn't do that, which was the original plan, great for commuters, not so great for those neighborhoods, is because Bill Davis put the kibosh on it. So, you know, he, had, uh, he was a red Tory, but he was also green Tory. He had a pretty good sense of uh, environmental wisdom, which would have been before his time for sure. Okay, i got to ask, you know, I'm going to bring this back. i got a couple of minutes left here, Steve, uh, because what you mentioned in the piece here, I think most of us that have been watching politics here in this province for the last number of years have noticed a, a softening on Doug's fort. Doug's fort. He was a, a little strident, a little headstrong maybe when he was first elected premier. It's kind of a whirlwind thing. He got the leadership and then this. Uh, I, I don't want to say he's a kinder, gentler uh, Doug Ford, but uh, he, he's reaching out. He's trying to be inclusive. Uh, is, is, is he emulating Bill Davis? Well, let's just say he has figured out that the massively disruptive, bombastic, uh, scorched earth uh, policies that he brought in and his, his tone, his demeanor, fighting with the media all the time, fighting with the opposition members all the time, uh, you know, picking on people who run provincial institutions like, uh, you know, the nickname of the guy who uh, headed up Hydro One, calling him the $6 million man. You know, that kind of over-the-top populist rhetoric, I think he finally figured out that you're going to burn out pretty quickly if you keep that up. And COVID gave him a chance to change the channel. And I don't think it's a stretch to say, look, he's not Bill Davis, 
But I don't think it's a stretch to say that Mr. Ford has figured out on most days of the week that if he keeps the rhetoric to a minimum, if he tries to reach out a little further, and he did this very well during the last Ontario election campaign in June, if he does all those things, just takes a bit of a chapter out of the Davis playbook, he might be able to hang around longer than one would have thought when he became as unpopular in the first year of his first term as it took Kathleen Wynne four years to become. So I think he's getting those lessons right now, which is why, Bill, which is why he gave the speech in the legislature last Tuesday uh, to praise Bill Davis. Normally a backbencher would have done it. The premier insisted on doing it himself, which is highly unusual. I've never seen a premier do it before. He did it, and it sort of capped off what was a lovely afternoon at Queen's Park. Well, given what we just mentioned uh, just before you joined us in the conversation here with what's going on with the teacher situation, and, and by the way, there will be more teachers' contracts coming up in the next couple of months as well. Uh, yeah. His uh, his 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 mirroring Bill Davis is going to come to a test very quickly right now. Uh, his patience <laughs> is going to be tried between this and, of course, the inquiry in Ottawa. There's a lot going on right now with the Premier. Right? And uh, let's see if he can hold on to that smile that he's uh, he's brandishing so often these days. It will be a challenge, but let's remember, Bill Davis had lots of fights with teachers as well and teacher unions. He loved teachers. A lot of his kids were teachers and grandkids, but that didn't mean he couldn't fight with them at the best of times when he thought, you know, this is enough. I'm paying you enough, and that's it. So, you know, we'll watch it all unfold as we always do. We sure will. Uh, you can go to the uh, website, by the way, tbo.org, and uh, check it out for yourself. It's a great piece, as always. Thanks so much, Steve. Really appreciate it. Always a joy to talk to you, Bill. Thanks very much. Take care. Steve Pekin, who's the host of The Agenda, which is seen every weeknight, of course, on TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As of 5 o'clock this morning, the uh, legislature in Queen's Park has been at work. Yeah, debating, they say, use the term loosely. Uh, the proposed legislation that Stephen Lecce tabled yesterday, which basically uh, would ban uh, any kind of a walkout or strike, uh, with the education workers, about 55,000 Ontario education workers say the members will walk off the job on Friday as a province-wide protest. Uh, we don't know, but it's a majority government, so obviously whatever the Ford government wants to do will pass through the legislature. But there are other people watching this with great interest, not just the uh, 55,000 education workers, including, by the way, uh, a number of other teachers' unions that are going to be uh, in a similar position not too far from now. Karen Brown is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Karen, thank you so much for the time. Glad to have you back with us today. Uh, hi, Bill. Thanks. Glad, glad to be on. First of all, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the back-to-work legislation, as they have termed this right now, which uh, basically says that uh, you could be fined up to $4,000 a day uh, if you don't show up for work on Friday. Uh, we're told from union representatives they're going to defy this, but some are suggesting this is a draconian piece of legislation. We've had uh, legal professors on that have said this is not within the government's purview. What's what's your read on this? Well, I we would we would definitely agree. It's 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 very draconian. I mean, we've never had a, a government uh, so anti-democratic, uh, anti-union, anti-working people to really at this point in time to you know impose uh, legislation that strips two fundamental rights. Uh, that are protected by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, the right to bargain collectively and the right to strike. Uh, this is an issue about democracy, once again, and, uh, and a flagrant abuse of power by this, by this government. Uh, we mentioned, of course, that you're watching with great interest here. Uh, your union and also the Secondary School Teachers Federation uh, are watching this, uh, and, and they full know well that, the, that there's a lot going on here in the next couple of months uh, vis-a-vis new contracts uh, with this government. Uh, with this 
legislation such as it is right now, Karen, are they sending you a message too? Well, we're watching. We're we're watching very very carefully uh, in regards to. Uh, the message they're sending to to labor, uh, anyone that's in a position to negotiate a contract, and if the government feels that they're at a position where uh, they they can't bargain any further, that they're going to use their legislative power as opposed to use the the bargaining process, the fair collective bargaining process that provides a variety of options uh, to solve a dispute as opposed to imposing an inferior contract on uh, employees. And I think that's a, that's a concern uh, for us. We are in the very early stages of, of bargaining. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're moving slowly, but at some point in time, uh, we have to move along the, the road when, when bargaining comes. So what's for us, what's critical is that these rights that we are able to bargain, to go through the process, and that um, a union has the, the right to strike. If that is their wish, their desire to utilize that tool within uh, the bargaining uh, parameters, they should be able to, uh, to do that. Right now, you know, ETFO has not um, engaged in any sort of uh, strike votes for our members or anything in, in that sort. Uh, we're really, you know, committed to being uh, at the table uh, and to engage in bargaining. And we're hoping that uh, this government is committed to a fair process. We haven't seen that so far, and we've made it very loud and clear that um, we we expect, as we are entering into um, moving along in this process, that you know we're seeing some true, fair, collective bargaining uh, engaging happening. Karen, if uh, the education workers uh, do not show up on Friday, and it seems to, by all indications that's going to be the case, what, if any, impact is that going to have on your members? Well, for what we're knowing, it's going to have an impact on on. Um, families and uh, you know students. Uh, some school boards have announced that they are going to be uh, closed. Our members most likely will be getting direction from those individual school boards uh, to re- to report to work, uh, and our members will be re- reporting to work. We are not in a legal strike position, but we will be supporting our QP members on the line. We'll be there before school, after school, and you know, and on our lunch break to to support them. Uh, they're right. Uh, this fight is also our fight. Uh, the right to bargain collectively and the right to strike it's 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 right of you know of those who are engaged in a part of the labor movement the right of working people and uh, no government should have the ability to uh, abuse that power uh, to you know attack and trample on uh, the, dem- the democratic rights, the constitutional rights of Ontarians. So we will do what we can um, in our position to support QP uh, in, 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 in their fight because it's a bigger fight. I, I don't know if anybody ever expects you guys to lock arms and walk down uh, University Boulevard together and thinking, you know, that everything is wonderful. Uh, but is there a chance for labor peace here or is this going to be one of these tumultuous years that is going to be fought in the courtrooms and then on picket lines? I mean, it can get awfully ugly. I mean, we've seen that happen before. Well, I, what I think we we need to really look at is, you know, we heard uh, the minister mention time and time again he's committed uh, to negotiating a, a fair collective agreement. Uh, we have we didn't see that. We we saw a change in in direction uh, from that. Uh, we have been committed uh, since starting in September. Uh, the minister was, you know saying all these things and how, you know, we're going to be on strike and school is going to be disrupted. And we, we, we made it very clear 
that our members want to be uh, in the classrooms. Uh, we want students in the classroom, but we also want to engage in a, in a fair process. Uh, so we're, we're, we're engaging in that now, or I'm hoping we'll be able to continue on that path. Uh, that's, that's determined by a commitment on both parties. Uh, you cannot be uh, using your power to, to, to squash um, some of our, our rights to, to freely negotiate and to exercise that process. And that's a concern. Um, I think everyone understands we're in, we're in challenging times, uh, but also we see that this government has, you know, is, is posting billions in surplus. Uh, they handed over $225 million directly to parents. Uh, so there is no reason why uh, uh, QP members, uh, you know, should not see uh, appropriate inf- increases in an environment where there's massive inflation and rising costs uh, in this province. And I think those are things to 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 take in consideration in regards to uh, when workers are, are trying to, you know, keep up with the, with the cost of a living. And uh, everyone, I think, did their best during the pandemic uh, to, to help this province and the, the students and the families of this province move forward. Um, but, uh, you know, our members uh, need to be able to continue uh, to, no, to, to keep up with with, uh, with, with all these uh, varieties of inflation and things like that. And it, there's a commitment on, you know, the government and us to, to make sure uh, this happens as, as smoothly as possible. But as I said before, this government is posting surplus in, in billions. And I think there are some of the things um, that are being asked are, are, are things that this government, if they have a true commitment to working people in this province, uh, should be able to uh, achieve. I don't think our, as we're entering into bargaining, our demands are, are not outlandish. They're not um, unreasonable. And uh, as I said, we're, we're prepared to, to, um, to be at the table and to try to get a, a deal that's uh, fair for our members. Garrett, we'll have to leave it there for now and uh, see just how the government reacts with the legislation later on today. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, thanks, Bill. You take care. Karen Brown, president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. And uh, more to come on this, of course, as we get more word out of Queen's Park. And uh, as soon as we do, we'll pass that on to you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting testimony uh, yesterday from a former Ottawa chief of police, uh, Peter Slowly. Uh, about his perspective on uh, what was going on in Ottawa and uh, the police reaction, or some would say non-reaction to it. Uh, Today, a couple of the protest organizers have started their testimony and already some interesting revelations about what they had planned and uh, just how public that information was. Uh, Joining us to sift through all of this uh, is uh, Michael Kappa, who's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. It, it seemed to me uh, over the last couple of days that uh, former Chief Slowly was there, uh, somewhat antagonistic, somewhat defensive, uh, but sticking to his guns. I mean, he hasn't changed uh, his, his narrative or story a, a whole lot right from the get-go, that they didn't know much and they did the best they possibly could. So that's exactly right. He uh, had a very strong narrative coming into it that did not waver at all uh, under testimony, quite testimony, in fact, particularly coming from lawyers for the Ottawa Police Service, uh, Councillor Michikovsky in particular, was basically trying to lay out a counter-narrative to Slowly's claims that they simply were unable to be prepared, that the thing collapsed because of poor leadership from Slowly himself, that he was some sort of paranoid bully who saw opposition and conspiracy around every corner. And that must have been difficult, but uh, Peter Slowly pushed back very hard on that counter-narrative. 
Well, especially as you mentioned, some of the testimony from, well, two of the chiefs, or deputy chiefs, rather, uh, who have previously testified. There was, I don't know, how would you classify this? It was a lack of communication, a lack of respect. Uh, I know that the, it's been pointed out that both uh, deputies uh, had been passed over for the chief's job and slowly was hired. And they're both longtime Ottawa police uh, officers. Uh, and slowly, of course, was hired out of Toronto. I don't know if there's some some animosity there because of that, but clearly, the it just seems as if that triumphant those three were not on the same page. Well, sources who aren't happy to be named, which always gives me pause as to yeah. how true it may be, have told me for years that there was animus between um, deputy and uh, or rather slowly at his uh, deputies and broader leadership executive. However slowly addressed this himself repeatedly in questioning through the testimony. I tend to take that word under oath a little strongly than that of anonymous sources within OPS. And he said, yes, there were moments where he lost confidence or degrees of confidence in his deputies, particularly when they made changes to critical incident commanders without informing him. But he did not at any time say that there was some sort of a cabal uh, to undermine him uh, as chief right from the beginning. He did allude to the fact that there were people who were not supportive of his mission. It's not quite the same as saying they were trying to undermine him, but there was definitely resistance and slowly made that clear. And he tied it to being an outsider. He tied it in some ways to uh, racial prejudice. Uh, and he tied it uh, in ways to just ongoing policing culture. This is in fact nothing unusual uh, or limited to the Ottawa Police Service. We see this in many cases where people who are not happy with police leadership uh, give them something called death by yes. They appear to be agreeing, they appear to be nodding and smiling and going along with the chief's orders, but behind the scenes may be slowing things up, um, not to undermine the chief, but not to make their lives any easier or their transformation project any easier. Uh, and I, I totally agree with that assessment, Professor. And, and I guess, okay, uh, maybe maybe there were some elements of that. But by the same token, uh, I don't know. In all the years that I've been doing this, that we've talked about uh, police services, not just here in Hamilton or London or Toronto or Ottawa or anywhere else, uh, there's always going to be conflicting points of view uh, between uh, the chief and, 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 of course, the command. And uh, as to how they respond to that and how they react to it, I guess is going to depend on each situation. But uh, when you make decisions uh, and you make command decisions, uh, probably half the people are going to be ticked off at you, half are going to follow along. So it depends, I guess, on who gets in front of the microphone first, doesn't it? It does indeed. And that was this what's difficult about this commission is very often people who are the subject of criticism don't respond for days and days and days. And there's already been 200 media articles about what has been said in a critical way days and days before. So that's difficult. The thing I'll add to that, though, is very often to overcome that problem, when you hire a progressive chief from the outside to bring a change mandate, it is usually helpful that that chief brings a couple of key people with them as sort of secondary appointments to place throughout the police organization to help execute the mission. Um, that was the case in Peel. It was the case in Edmonton, and it worked very well. It was not the case in Ottawa. And unfortunately, it seems that the police services board in Ottawa hasn't learned that lesson because they've just appointed a new chief to the Ottawa Police Service, um, Mr. Stubbs from the RCMP. And my understanding is he's not coming with his own team, a couple of key appointments. Uh, I think that was a mistake. 
I, I understand the stated goal of, the, of this inquiry is to determine whether or not, you know, the government was, was right in, in imposing the act, in invoking the act. Uh, but it just seems as if the, one of the subtext here is to try to find scapegoats. Uh, the, obviously, former chief slowly was, was, I think, characterized by, uh, by some of the cross-examination in that regard. Uh, Mayor Watson was. But the, the common theme here, though, Professor, seems to be these guys weren't ready. Uh, they had information that they chose not to uh, use for one reason or another. We don't even know how far up the chain of command that decision was made. And, and they knew this was coming, but they just assumed, uh, figured it was just going to blow away. I mean, Slowly's comments, as you mentioned, he hasn't changed his, his, uh, his tact at all from the, the beginning of this. He still thought they were going to go home on Sunday, and I, I don't really know how he came to that conclusion, but that's, uh, that's what he was sticking to. Well, they were relying on previous, previous experience. They applied their lenses from what they had experienced before in terms of protest in Ottawa and other cities where typically, after a period of time, mass protest leaves typically at less than a week. And the deputy, Steve Bell, spoke to this in his testimony when he talked about a paradigm shift. I mean, I'm a social scientist, so my ears immediately pricked up, and I knew what he meant. He got intelligence from OPP. He looked at it, and he was looking at it through the lenses of the old security paradigm where he thought, okay, people probably aren't going to stay that long, so what can I find in this document? Do we know anything about their plans? Where should we put our people? But now the paradigm has shifted, as Bell said. We're living in a world where because of social media and the ability to raise money online, Protesters can come with heavy machinery and grind a city to a halt for an extended period of time, whatever they may say about their initial intentions. These things are either they're either misleading the police or these things take on a life of their own when they arrive and they go in directions that maybe even some of the organizers don't anticipate and they stay longer. This will certainly be the argument of many of the witnesses we're going to hear from the convoy organizations that they never had this intention. It just kind of got carried away. So Bell and the intelligence people in OPS looked at it through the wrong lenses and they made mistakes. The other layer to that, though, is in addition to those old paradigm lenses is there's biases and slowly talked about this yesterday. And so did Bell, where we saw in the OPS intelligence reports, very strange language describing the arrival of convoy in terms of a social movement comprised of middle class people had a lot of support across the country, and they were relying on a column written by Rex Murphy in the National Post in this OPS report. Now, obviously, whoever wrote this report, and his name is uh, Sergeant Keyes, um, was falling victim a little bit here of looking at the convoy as something of just basically nice Canadian people who were coming with good intentions, and it certainly wouldn't get out of control, and they probably had legitimate beefs with the government and so forth. It would not have been looked at that way if it had been thousands of indigenous protesters making their way across the country to converge on Ottawa or a Black Lives Matters movement. And Bell and Slowly were very um, explicit about that, saying that they need to do better to get these biases of interpreting information um, out of their intelligence lenses. And isn't that part of the problem as, as we've tried to get an assessment? And, and as you say, there's been a long parade of witnesses so far. Uh, to try to identify exactly who was involved in this. Uh, I, I'm certain there were people th that were like that. There were just angry Canadians uh, about, well, it could have been vaccine mandates, could have been anything, could have been their taxes, I don't know. But there seemed to be intelligence at the same time, Professor, wasn't there, that 
that that that, that there were some nefarious elements in that group as well, uh, maybe not even known to each other that were there, uh, who had Absolutely. a much different agenda. Well, and this is the thing. So, head of intelligence for OPP, Superintendent uh, Morris, was probably the best at articulating this, where he said the crowd was comprised of people with multiple grievances, he put it, he put it as. And some were there about um, COVID-19 mandates, and some were there about, as you say, their taxes, or this or that, or whatever issues they have with government overreach. But attaching themselves to that movement and exploiting that movement, as they always do, there are people with more radical ideologies, some of whom come from the far political right and are interested in dismantling centralized government to live a much more you could call it almost like an anarchist local type of existence, some of whom were motivated by religious ideologies, so Christian fundamentalism and so forth, some motivated by a combination of strange factors, you know, racist policies or racist views on immigration and, and so forth, and some of these things all muddled up together. The people who advance these radical ideologies, make no mistake, they are the empirical minority. They make up a small portion. 10 to 15% is what Slowly and other intelligence agents have said of large crowds. But they're smart. They take their ideology anywhere they see an opportunity to expand it. And a protest movement like this is perfect. COVID-19 is a great hook issue that they can pull people in the protest. And, you know, in other words, people show up, they're angry about COVID-19 mandates, and while they're there, they're exposed to all of these other ideologies and people who are attempting to recruit into their more radical campaigns. How organized, uh, Professor, from what you've heard and seen so far, how organized were these protesters and how strategic? Uh, former Chief Slowly seemed to indicate in his testimony yesterday uh, that the blockade in Windsor uh, that was occurring at the same time was strategic. Uh, to open a second front is what he seemed to intimate, you know, to try to divide and conquer uh, law enforcement forces. Uh, I, I haven't heard that, that concept before, that in, in situations like that, I don't know if it was coincidental, but it, it, did, did they have a plan like that, that there were uh, different factors of it they, they were implementing? Well, in a nutshell, yes. Uh, we're going to see evidence on the stands from the witnesses now, the convoy leadership. And we're seeing it a little bit this morning with Mr. Barber, this sort of, oh, shucks, everything just kind of took on a life of its own. And before we knew it, we didn't even understand how we ended up in the center of Ottawa because we meant to take our trucks to where we were allowed to park on sort of the periphery. And one thing led to another, and there we were. Um, but when you look at the intelligence that's been scraped uh, from social media, various streams and who exactly will come out in the next uh, week or so, we're talking about their capacity to grind Ottawa to a halt. They were talking about Operation Bear Hug, where this was an intention to grind things to a halt by using trucks to block the roadways and essentially not allow the city to go about its business. And they managed to attract very sophisticated planners who are ex-police, military, and allegedly even uh, JTF2, which is the uh, almost the equivalent of the Canadian Navy SEALs, um, who shared logistical planning skills uh, and, in fact, equipment. So there were supply lines in Ottawa moving from the famous baseball diamond at Country Road, uh, where there was fuel and food and other things stockpiled and out through chains into the city to sustain protest on the ground. Uh, there was the ability to, to, to put together 
shelters and huts and places to cook and so forth. So this was very sophisticated. I don't think that the original convoy planners sort of had it all perfectly laid out months and months in advance. I think that as they got a little bit more uh, organized closer to the date, others with logistical experience were sought out by them, but also approached them because they learned about them through social media and offered their skills. What about within the police services themselves? There have been accusations, as you've heard, uh, that there was some complicity there, that, that some of the officers certainly seem to, uh, uh, say, shall we say, be sympathetic to the, to the plight of a, a number of the protesters. Okay, so this is definitely a problem, and it's something we need to be honest about, and most progressive members of the police are willing to be honest about it. It is a reality that uh, far-right ideology and various conspiracy-oriented uh, political theories have made their way into police organizations. We know that because they exist in society and the police are made up of people from society and a bureaucratic, hierarchical, semi-militarized organization will tend to, over time, exaggerate these views within an organization. We know that we look at the military and it's a big problem with the infiltration of the far right into the military. So it is a problem in policing. We've got to get in there, diagnose it. I'm hopeful that the commission will get into this a little bit more and start dealing with it because honorable police officers don't want that within their organization. It makes their job that much harder. You end up with a situation, one source put it to me, that 10% of police officers who may have um, radical far-right views end up determining almost 100% of the environment within policing because they are the loudest and the bullies and those who can organize sort of informal networks of reprisal and uh, intimidation and so forth. So honorable cops want these members out of the force, whether they're trained out of those mentalities or simply not allowed in to begin with. Uh, and we've seen evidence. This is not unique to Ottawa. I know that even during the uh, January 6th investigation in Congress, uh, there seem to be strong indications that some Secret Service and, frankly, some FBI agents uh, were sympathetic to, to the protesters and what was going on there, too. So, it's uh, as you say, it's something that needs to be addressed and talked about, and it's not something that's unique to Ottawa, but certainly there seems to be some indication that there were elements of that uh, with what was happening here. Do we expect, i got about a minute or so left here, Professor, do we expect any revelations from the, the organizers of this protest? Uh, you mentioned Mr. Barber is on the stand now. He's the first of a few that are going to testify. Well, the revelations will be, it will be surprising perhaps to those who study these types of social movements, but they're going to start disavowing each other. And it's already started this morning uh, with Mr. Barber saying, oh, Canada unity uh, and their MOU. I didn't read it, but I wasn't happy with the contents. And it was sort of a funny moment there where the lawyer said, well, how do you know the contents if you, if you didn't read it? Uh, and he said, well, people told me. So there'll be that disavowal. And what I would say there is the, the, the streams of organizers want to be on the side of angels here. They don't, they're going to sort of suggest that it was others who were organizing that were responsible for anything that was in any way against the law. And I would just end by pointing out on that point on policing and military and FBI and so forth, that is the ultimate prize for people from the far right and other radical ideologies. They start with protests. They start with organized crime, religious organizations to grow their ideology. But ultimately, they want to get into state institutions because that's where the power resides. And once they get into there, you're really in trouble. 
Professor, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you kindly. That's uh, Michael Kepka, professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa, who, of course, is watching intently uh, with the proceedings with the uh, the act and the, the enactment of the act, of course, by the federal government. Uh, and, of course, in the University of Ottawa, he was also a, a regular commentator on all the uh, major television networks as uh, the protest and the insurrection was uh, ongoing in February in Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.